The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, beginning at verse 13. We'll be reading through verse 18 this morning. The word of the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. We'll be reading through verse 48 this morning. The word of our God. You have heard that it was said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. A story is told about a man who's going on a business trip for several days, and he wants his son to be helpful around the house. And so he turns to his son and says, Johnny, I'm going to be away for a few days, and while I'm gone, I want you to think of what I normally do around the house, and I want you to do that in my place. Would you do that for me? And then he goes on his trip. And when he comes back, he's curious about how it worked out. How helpful was little Johnny? And so he asks his wife, how did it go with Johnny? And she says it was the strangest thing. He'd get up in the morning, he'd eat breakfast, and then he'd make a second cup of coffee. He'd go sit in the den. He'd read the newspaper for half an hour while turning the music up loud. Well, that's the challenge with being a parent. 
You know, there, there are things we want our children to imitate from us, but we never know exactly what they're going to imitate. And sometimes it could turn out a lot worse than it did with little Johnny. But you see, we don't have that problem with our Heavenly Father. Our Father in Heaven is absolutely perfect. So however we imitate His character, we are becoming more and more of what God created us and redeemed us to be. His image bearers who reflect His character into this world. As sons and daughters of God, we are called to reflect our Father's character. And of course, that means being conformed into the likeness of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. This big picture of who our Father in Heaven is, what He is like, and the fact that He is calling us to imitate Him by reflecting His character into the world is the main point of this morning's sermon. It is the main point of these passages. Now, if you don't get that principle, you're going to be in trouble. If you're not grasped by this truth that God is calling you to be like him, or perhaps better, if you're not being grasped by that truth, it's laid hold of you so that it grabs your heart and your mind, you're going to have difficulty understanding the law of God. But if you get it, you're going to understand the spirit of all the laws that God gives us in terms of loving him and loving one another. In fact, if we don't grasp, or as I say, if we're not better grasped by this truth, um, not only are we at risk of not understanding the laws at all, we're at risk of applying what Jesus is saying in this passage in a wooden manner. That is, we absolutize the applications in such a way that we actually do violence to other things that God teaches us elsewhere in his revealed will. Now, Christ's original teaching was intended to be grasped in three steps. You have to think about people showing up on this mountain, and they're hearing these words for the first time. Well, you've heard these words dozens of times in your life if you're an older person like me, and it's hard for us to get back into that setting. But for the original audience who's hearing these words for the first time, they were intended to grasp it in three steps. First, Christ gives radical applications of the law in verses 38 and 42. And frankly, these were intended to shock his hearers. As undoubtedly they would have shocked you the very first time you heard them. I mean, are we really to turn the other cheek when someone slaps us on the right cheek. By the way, that's not so much a, um, a, a physical fight sort of thing. It's an insult, right? You get slapped on one cheek. Do you defend your dignity, or are you willing to suffer further onslaughts of your dignity by turning your cheek? Are you willing to do that? And does Jesus really mean that if someone sues you, you ought to give them more than what they're asking for in their lawsuit? Right? So this was intended to shock the original readers. Second, in verses 43 through 48, Christ explains why Christians are to live so radically differently from the way the world expects. That is, verses 43 through 48 give us the pattern and the motivation for doing the applications in the previous verses. Right? So the applications came first, and they're shocking. Everyone would have gone, wow, he can't really mean this. 
And then we turn to the second paragraph and we get the pattern and the motivation for why we do that. And Jesus, of course, intends that after doing those two steps, that people with the pattern and motivation would go back to the applications and now actually put them into practice in their lives. That's how this was intended to work. But since you already all know and have heard these passages before, I think it'll be more straightforward for us to just do steps two and three. Right? We're not going to start with step one. You've already heard this passage. We're going to first invert these passages so that we look at the motivation that we get and the pattern we get from God first, and then we're going to turn back to the applications and see what they are supposed to do in our lives. So let's look at these two passages together under three main headings. First, you are the light of the world. Second, the Christian life is not a 50-50 proposition. And third, more than good advice, this is good news. Let me give you those three points again. First, you are the light of the world. Second, the Christian life is not a 50-50 proposition. And third, more than good advice, this is good news. We begin with the truth that you are the light of the world. Look at verses 43 through 45 with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You shall hate your enemy. Where in the world did Jews get this idea in the first century? You shall hate your enemy. Well, one thing's clear is they didn't get it from sacred scripture. That is not what the Old Testament Bible teaches us. In fact, the only place in the entire Septuagint, that's the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, that uses this word for hate uh, in this context of of a command as an imperative, is actually our old covenant reading this morning. You shall not hate your brother. The only command about hating in the Bible is you shall not hate your brother. So where in the world did these first century Jews get the idea that you shall hate your enemy. Well, I should say more than that. That's just simply an example. But if we look at the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs explicitly instructs us, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. That is, you are to do acts of kindness to your enemies. And in fact, the law of Moses, this is from Exodus 23, verses 4 through 5, The law of Moses commands this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, very explicit language, your enemy, someone who hates you, someone who is against you. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So the Old Testament is commanding us to 
not simply have warm thoughts in our hearts, but to actually show deeds of kindness toward those who hate us. So if the law and the wisdom of the Old Testament teach us to do acts of kindness for those who hate us, how could this ever be twisted into an oral teaching which says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Regrettably, we all know the answer. And it's not just an answer we know because we studied ancient history. We know it in our own day. The answer is tribalism. See, tribalism is a thing where you really so identify with your own group that the people outside the group, at the very best, are people you don't care about, you're indifferent to. But often you end up being hostile toward those people on the outside. It's a problem that's just rife throughout American culture right now. Tribalism acts as though the thing which matters most is my own tribe or my own group. And, And once you do that, tribalism tends to justify or at least minimize any wrong that is done by any member of our group. And it tends to exaggerate any wrong done by any member who's outside our group. In fact, tribalism allows you, when you hear a rumor going around, instead of going, I ought not to listen to rumors, that's what the Bible teaches, you go, yeah, I could totally believe it about those people, right? And you can even justify your own hatred toward those in the other tribe as a sign of loyalty to your own group. To point out the obvious, Jesus and the Old Testament law teach that this is entirely wrong. Consider this application from our Old Covenant reading for this morning. We stopped our reading at Leviticus chapter 19 at verse 18. Uh, This is where the Lord famously tells us You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, if you don't reflect very much about this verse and you don't bother to keep reading, it's very easy for someone to say, well, yeah, I love my neighbor, love those who are close to me, love those who are in my tribe. But God gives us his own application, and all we have to do is keep reading. As we keep reading through Leviticus 19, we come to verses 33 and 34. And there the Lord solemnly declares his own application to us. This is what the Lord says. When a stranger, please mark that, when a stranger sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Who do we love the way that we love ourselves? According to God, the stranger who happens to cross our paths. In fact, the Lord commands us to treat the stranger who sojourns among us just as we treat the natives who are already living with us. So there goes tribalism in a single blow. And you know, it's not hard if you pay attention to what's going on in American politics right now to realize our country would be so much better off if America would just adopt this one thing about how we treat people who are different from us, who disagree with us, and we kill tribalism. 
But Jesus isn't giving this commandment to America. He's giving it to us, the people of God in the church. He's not saying you should go home and lament that America isn't more like this. He's calling you and me to go home and look in the mirror and saying, am I like this? Am I doing it the world's way or am I doing it Christ's way? Do I love my neighbor who's different from me, who disagrees with me, and by the way, in this context, who hates me? Do I love him as though I love myself? That's the call on our lives. Isn't that what Jesus is plainly telling us to do? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Beloved, this is the very heart of the passage that this call for us to be like our Father who is in heaven. As Grant Osborne puts it, the model for this difficult activity of loving those who hate us is nothing less than God himself, who has become our Father in Jesus Christ. Like obedient children, we must emulate our Father and act toward evil people as he does. Now, it's necessary in preaching through something as rich as the Sermon on the Mount that we take it in small bits. We've got to spend time on it. And uh, actually, it's a great privilege for us to be able to take so much time and to go home and meditate in your, on your own and then come together as a church family and study this incredible portion of God's word together. There's actually, however, a downside to doing this. The original people hearing Jesus would have heard the beginning of the sermon four or five minutes ago. It would all be fresh in their minds. Whereas if I were to tell you to turn back 20 or 30 verses, that might be six or seven weeks ago, because we took some extra passages in here around Christmas, and you don't even remember what Jesus was saying. So, so here's something I want to encourage you to do over the next couple of months. Two or three times, you have to do it every week, although that would be fine too. Um, read Matthew 5 through 7, that's the entire Sermon on the Mount, in one sitting. Do that a couple times. It'll take you less than 15 minutes to read it out loud. And what you'll do when you read the whole sermon together is you'll connect all these things that Jesus is saying. And see, one of the things that Jesus has just said that would be ringing in their ears is, you are the light of the world. And that's the principle that Jesus is coming back to here, too. See, you do not become the light of the world because you go out and achieve great things. You actually are the light of the world because you're in Christ and you're trying to be his disciples. But to be his light simply means that you're like his Father in heaven. The more you are conformed into the likeness of your Father in heaven, the brighter your light will shine for the glory of God. It is not about your achievements for the kingdom of God. It is simply about you becoming like Jesus and therefore like his Father. If you turn and you read through the whole Sermon on the Mount in one sitting you'll be reminded that just 30 verses earlier, Jesus would have said this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is returning to that principle as he calls us to imitate our Father. Uh, The image of God in man was badly marred through the fall of mankind into sin. But beloved, God sent his Son, the true image of the invisible God, to redeem us, yes, but also to renew God's image within us together with the Holy Spirit. You are being renewed in the image of God even now as you hear his word and as you trust your Father who is in heaven. Now, once again, we are being called to reflect God's perfect character out into the world. And since our Father in heaven is characterized by his love for humanity, even from those who are alienated from him and who mock him, we're called to be like him in those very activities. To love those who hate us. To, to, God causes the sun to shine on them. We can't do that. But we can give them a glass of cold water. We can give them kind words. We're called to do that very thing. As Jesus points out, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the pattern. That is the principle. We are to be salt and light in the world by becoming more and more like our Heavenly Father. Now, with that pattern and principle in mind, let's go back to verse 38 and look at the applications that Jesus gave us in the first place. And I acknowledge again, they were quite jarring when we first saw them. They might be quite jarring to you this morning. But they are meant for our instruction, not simply for our minds, but it would change the way that we live. Verses 38 through 42. Uh, I have labeled this whole section, Christianity is not a 50-50 proposition. First, Jesus states what the people have heard through their own encrusted traditions. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, unlike the twisted oral tradition that says, hate your enemy, these words are in the Old Testament law. They actually show up in at least three places. God does command, give the command to Israel that involves this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle. It's very clear in the word of God. The problem isn't with the law, however. It's how the law has been distorted in its application. The oral tradition had taken what was intended as a law for judges and was telling people to apply it in their personal lives, right, in their individual inter- interactions with one another. So consider how this commandment originally appears in Exodus chapter 34. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 24. Moses writes, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, 
as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So what's the context of this law? It's not hard to figure out. It's the courts. The, the, the very uh, last thing that's said before we come to this law is we're told this. He shall pay as the judges determine. And you're going to see that same context if you look at this commandment in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's the context of the law courts. The problem was in first century Judaism, people were applying this same principle to their own lives and how they were relating to one another. What the Lord is commanding through this law is that judges should render punishments that fit the crime, proportionate to the crime. Uh, Even-handedly, whether the person being hurt is rich or poor, whether the offender is rich or poor, the punishment is to fit the crime. And let me add that I think most of us today still very much want that to be how our courts act. You know, if someone got a $50 fine for murder and someone else got a five-year sentence in jail for not paying a traffic ticket, we'd all realize those are unjust sentences. We want the punishment to fit the crime. That's what God was commanding people to do. And I should add only because I've heard some people misunderstand this. This principle of an eye for an eye is not to be taken woodenly. It's not as though if somebody punched a guy in his eye and he lost his eyesight, they'd go gouge the eye out of someone else. That is not what is going on. It's just imagery that points to proportionality. What would happen in the law is they would give a fine. Right? They, they, they would have some kind of monetary compensation that reflected that level of injury. The question, of course, is how big is the fine? Well, it fits the amount of damage that's done. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. Right? So this is not, uh, sometimes people have called this, uh, we call this the lex talionis, uh, sometimes people put this as though this was like some kind of vicious, barbaric thing, you know? Somebody breaks your hand, you cut their hand off. That is not what is going on. Read the Old Testament law and you'll see that that is not the case. All this commandment is saying is the punishment in the court must fit the crime. But as I've mentioned, the problem was the people in the first century were taking what was intended as a standard for the law courts and turned it into a principle of personal ethics, whereby every offense a person experienced should be met by harming the person who harmed you. You know, um, I don't want to dig too deep in your life, so don't raise your hands here, but have you ever been, like, in a supermarket, and there's some guy, this just happened to me the other day, so this is a very personal experience. There's an older man there, it's like not some young kid, you know, someone in their 50s or 60s, who's acting like a complete jerk. You know, he's cutting people off, blocking them from getting where they want. He doesn't care how other people are moving around and stuff. Don't you just have a little bit inside of you that's going, I kind of hope this guy gets something or something bad happens to him. Like, that's our instinctual reaction as fallen human beings, even as something as petty as a guy who's cutting the woman off in front of me with a shopping cart, right? That's wrong. That's not what God's calling us to do. God's calling us to look upon men like that and to pray for them. that Their hearts would be softened. 
to wonder what's going on in this person's life that maybe he's having a really, really, really difficult few weeks. He's just completely worn out and he's doing the best that he can to look upon them with mercy and compassion and to pray that God would work in their life. See, that, that system of wanting to treat your personal interactions like a law court to return harm to those who harm you is not a system of proportional justice. It's a system of personal revenge. Something we're forbidden to do as the people of God. And thankfully, Jesus shows us a better way. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go two miles with him. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now I think verse 42, the last verse here, gives us some real insight into what Jesus is driving at. Because you know, he starts with someone slapping you on the face, there's someone harming you, and he's calling you not to have a spirit of retaliation. But you know, the person who is, the people here are poor, that's the idea. There's a beggar who says, could you please help me out a little bit? Can you give me some money? Or perhaps they're a neighbor who's poor and is going, I, I need a loan to get, to get things carried over. I'm going to lose my farm, but would you lend me some money? And then when the crops come in, I'll pay you back. Now, in Old Testament law, you were required to do that for your fellow Israelites. You weren't required, actually, to do that in the law for, for the sojourner. It's kind of an interesting thing. We're never told that. But um, you are required to do it for, for your fellow there, your neighbor, the person that's next to you. And um, why would Christians be reluctant to do that? Right? Jesus is saying, be generous with people. Well, the issue is obvious. As I give them money, I diminish my own estate. Right? It's very easy for us to think, well, you know what? If this poor person wants money from me, they ought to earn it, not get it as charity. And why in the world should I loan money to people who probably can't pay it back? That's the issue. They're so poor. Why should I lend them money? I mean, the least I deserve if I'm going to lend money to people is I'm going to get the principal back with a reasonable amount of interest. I want a good deal. And see, if you apply this law balance to people, like you're in a court, you end up treating all your interactions as though they're economic deals. Am I going to get at least a fair deal, and hopefully a pretty good deal, out of my interaction with other people? But, beloved, other people do not exist for your economic well-being. Right? They, they are people created in the image of God. Their, their value is not tied up in the fact that if they're wealthy, they're worth more, and if they're poor, they're worth less. Rather, God has actually distributed wealth unevenly. Remember, God has done that precisely so that you could take out of your gifts and help those who don't have them, because it's not just money. God does that in the church. He gives a diversity of gifts so that we can give other people, out of our abundance, what they don't have, and unite us together as the people of God. Right? That's what Jesus is driving at. Don't treat people simply on that tit-for-tat, what's in it for me, out of their relationship. Yet, See, I had to have a yet here. Please mark this well in your thinking. If we remember that we are to reflect God's character into the world, 
that will also keep us from foolishly absolutizing the illustrations while ignoring the underlying principle that Jesus is giving to us. That's so important, I want to say it again. There are whole strands of Christianity that have missed this point. If we remember that we are to reflect God's character into the world, that will also keep us from foolishly absolutizing the illustrations while ignoring the underlying principle that Jesus is giving to us. So does your Father in heaven always give people what they ask for? No, he does not. Right? God is gracious and open-handed in character. Right? We sing amazing grace. It's right, but God does not always give people what they ask for. For one thing, giving what they ask for is not necessarily in their best interest. But just as we are to imitate our Father in heaven in being generous of spirit and open-handed with people who are in need, we are also to imitate our Father in heaven by not being a doormat for those who are simply abusing the situation. You know, and to ask an obvi- point out an obvious thing, you're walking down the street in Cambridge and you come across someone asking you for money, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't give it to them. I mean, that's something you've got to figure out in each situation how you're doing it. But realistically, you may be simply giving them money to buy drugs or alcohol. It's a tricky situation. And if you love that person, what you want is what's best for them, not what makes you feel good, like now I'm a generous person because I gave them $5. Right? That, that, that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. We are to imitate our Father in heaven by maintaining a generous and loving attitude, and we are also to imitate our Father in heaven by not being a perpetual doormat. We should remember that the incarnate Son of God, the perfect image of the invisible God, did not always give people what they asked for either. Of course, truth be told, we have fewer problems imitating Jesus and not giving people what they asked for than imitating him and his radical grace toward others. Our natural inclination is to keep score, tit for tat. And Jesus is calling us to something better. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, Christ's words are to reform our instincts, our quick reactions, our unwillingness to sacrifice. I particularly like the way Professor Gibbs puts that. It's not simply we've got this book and in the moment we apply it. Right? Christ is calling us to have a change of heart so that our very instincts are being changed away from that fallen human desire to get revenge when people hurt us so that our instinctual response is, how can I mirror my Father in heaven in this situation? And that takes a lifetime of discipleship. Paul hits very close to the same target with his admonition in Romans chapter 12. And this is a helpful grid for these passages to mutually interpret one another. Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Now, it's actually possible that Paul is giving a bit of commentary in this letter to the Romans on these very words from Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5. But either if he is or he isn't, but either way, I want to draw your attention to three things that Paul says which will help us to practically apply what our Lord is teaching us in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. First, Paul says, repay no one evil with evil. Beloved, in this world, you're going to have struggles and fights. That's not a surprise. Jesus tells us that. But we are not to fight against the world with the world's weapons. We must fight the world in the same way that Christ does. And this will require us to demonstrate sacrificial love. Not just sentimental love, but a love that costs us something, at least in worldly terms. Second, Paul says, so far as it depends on you, neither Jesus nor Paul is calling us to absolute passivity. Christianity is not about passive passivism. Jesus and Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, are calling us to reform our attitudes so that we seek to be instruments of peace and blessing rather than being instruments of vengeance and selfishness. Third, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So please mark this in your thoughts. The Lord is not calling you to be a doormat. The Lord is not calling you to be a loser for the sake of the kingdom of God. Rather, the Lord is calling us to be those who overcome. That's Paul's very words here. He's calling us to be those who overcome. Beloved, this is a call to victory. We are to overcome the evil. But we are to overcome the evil with the good. Right? We're not fighting fire with fire. Beloved, you are the light of the world. And as the light of this world, you cannot live your life on a tit-for-tat basis. The Christian life is not a 50-50 proposition where we need to make sure that nobody ever takes advantage of us. That is not our call. Rather, we are called to overcome the evil with the good. I think a big part of us having the motivation to live in this radical, self-giving way is that this very passage is not simply good advice to us. It is good news for us. After all, while we are being called to live this way for the sake of others and for the glory of God, when the Son of God came into this world, this is precisely how he lived. It's precisely how our Savior lived for the sake of sinners like us. As Tom Wright points out, Jesus did all these things himself and he opened up the new way of being human so that all who follow him can discover it too. When they mocked Jesus, he did not respond. When they challenged him, he told quizzical and sometimes humorous stories, stories that forced them to see that they were not thinking correctly about God or about his world. When they struck him, he took the pain. When they put the worst bit of Roman equipment on his back, 
the heavy crossbeam on which he would be executed, he carried it out of the city towards the place of his own crucifixion. When they nailed him to the cross, he prayed for them. Think about that. See, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just about us. If it was, we might admire it as a fine bit of idealism, but we would then return to our normal lives. Yet it's about Jesus himself. This was the blueprint for his own life. He asks nothing of his followers that he has not first done himself. Beloved, I want you to think of the greatest thing you could possibly do with the rest of your life. Go ahead, take a moment, think about it. You guys have dreams, you have hopes. What is the greatest thing you could possibly do with the rest of your life? And then think about being like Jesus. Beloved, being like Jesus is greater than anything else you could think of. And that is what God is calling us to do in his power. By his grace, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and for his glory, the living God is calling you to become like Jesus. Jesus lived the life that we could not live so that we would be justified by his life and through his life-giving death. Now the Holy Spirit is graciously empowering us that we would reflect our Heavenly Father's character into the world and so that we would overcome the evil by doing good, just like Jesus. Praise be to God. Amen.